and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. I'm really excited to introduce you to one of the most incredible men I know, James Horsburgh, most commonly known as Teddy. His perseverance, determination, and positive attitude is admired by so many and we could all take a leaf out of his book. I met Teddy in my second year at uni at St. Albert's College in the New England, where we studied law together. We both lived on campus at Owies, and due to our studies, or more likely our social outings to the pub, our friendship grew very quickly. In my third year, we both moved over to E-Block, otherwise known as Tasmania, because it was a block of rooms that were self-catered and most people kept to themselves. We both thought this would be our ticket to getting higher academic marks, but unfortunately, I think we changed the reputation of eBlock forever as we invited every man and his dog over for constant parties after the pub and late night feeds. After my graduation, I moved to Brizzy and Teddy stayed on to finish his law degree, play representative rugby and take up the role of head of college. On the 7th of October, 2004, I finished a late night shift at the Storybridge Hotel in Brisbane And as soon as I picked up my phone, I knew something was seriously wrong. I had 34 missed calls from all of my friends. And when I listened to message after message, tears streaming down my face, I started to feel really sick in the stomach. Teddy had dived into a water fountain after a night out with our mates and was airlifted to Royal North Shore Hospital. As the next 24 hours unfolded, I learned that Teddy had dislocated his neck and the doctors were saying he would never walk again. As I listened to Teddy tell his story in this interview, I got shivers as it felt like yesterday that we were sitting at the hospital praying that he would get some movement back. Teddy's perseverance is beyond amazing. He is now the director at a Bathurst law firm, McIntosh, McPhillamy and Co. And Teddy was admitted as a lawyer to the Supreme Court of New South Wales in 2007 and as a solicitor to the High Court of Australia in 2008. He has graduated with the Masters of Applied Law, And James has become an accredited specialist in family law. He's also a lecturer at Child Sturt University and vice president of Central West Rugby. Teddy is married to his amazing wife, Natalie, who just happens to be my first ever roomie at boarding school. And they have three beautiful little girls. Just a heads up, this episode contains discussions on spinal cord injury. So if you need to skip this episode, we will see you next week. Otherwise, let's go. I'd like to welcome you, Ted, to Challenges That Change Us for the second time. We actually got about three, oh, halfway through our first interview before um, we realized we hadn't pressed record. So welcome, Teddy. Thank you for having me, Alice. Uh, it's extremely humbling uh, to be invited to do this and to speak about something that's extremely close to my heart with such a great mate is, uh, yeah, it's an honour. So thank you. I think it's it's more of a privilege from my seat, Ted. I know when I've thought I've been thinking about this interview for days and you know, it's very close to my heart, but just I just take my hat off for you to be able to even 
go there and have the conversations because they're not easy. It's challenging when you go back to those moments and you think about what happened, what those few weeks were like, what those few months were like. And and to to have the courage to go back there and speak publicly about it is just really such an honour to be here on this journey with you. Thank you. So I like to start all of our podcasts with um, in a question that is, if if you were to use an animal to describe yourself, what animal would that be? Uh, I'd have to say a dog. Uh, and the reason why I say a dog is because um, I'd like to think that uh, I'm extremely loyal to my family and friends, but I'm extremely social creature as well. Um, and somewhat playful. So that's <laughs> absolutely probably- for those that don't know Teddy playful is definitely a word that we use to describe him. Uh, and along with the name Teddy, it's because he's such a big cuddly teddy bear, but it's always that beautiful smile and you can always hear you coming around the corner laughing and joking and you know, definitely one of the more social creatures I've ever met. I'd have to agree with that. I'd agree with that. <laughs> what would your kids describe you as if they were going to use an animal? What would the girls say? Wow, that's a very good question. I think they would describe me as an animal that would be, it would have to be something that was soft and cuddly. I, I don't think they see me uh, as a disciplinarian, so to speak, <laughs> they uh, I leave that up to mum uh, to do that, for which I get criticised from time to time. But more so, I think I would like to think they see me as some sort of friendly bear or 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 someone that. Are we talking not- about the same animals here? Bear friendly. I was talking yeah, to May well, the other maybe, day who got chased uh, down in a forest by a bear. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm struggling to think of what, of what it possibly could be, but it's something that uh, I would like to think that they they know uh, and think that I look out for them and that I've got their back and um, protect them, but at the same time, a um, bit of a soft touch. So yeah. whatever animal that may be. It's interesting when you say soft touch, um, you're also in a director's role at your work and I'd imagine that, that that's exactly the same there, that everyone knows you as a social guy and super friendly and cares about everyone. How do you manage that soft touch side when you're leading up a company, an organisation? It's difficult and I would like to think, once again, I probably am not a dictator at work. I would like to think that my management style is extremely inclusive. I regularly spend time going around and speaking to various staff members in the office just to find out how they're going, how their family's going and what they've been up to on the weekend because I find that that's one of the really enjoyable parts of working in an office and working with a close group of people. Being in a situation where people often ask me, you know, do you do big hours? Well, an average day for me probably starts somewhere around seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning and I finish up around six thirty, seven o'clock of an evening. Now I know that I could probably get the same amount of work done if I worked nine to five, but it wouldn't allow me for going around to have a chat. The extra four hours of chatting in the day. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So <laughs> it, it's the yeah. glue though sometimes I find. Do you? It's the glue in the office when there's someone there that cares about each individual. There's a time and a place for everything. There's a time for task and there's a time for people. There's a time for discipline and there's time for the soft touches. But I think it's really important in a workplace to have someone that 
is charismatic, cares about everyone else, and is very people-focused, which is how I'd describe you. Yeah, I'd like to think so. And I'd like to think that I get the best out of people when we work together. Collaboratively. Yeah, I'm extremely team-focused. And one of the things that playing sport in a team environment taught me is how important it is to understand your fellow team members in order to eke out their strengths and weaknesses. And once that is known, then I think that if you all work together uh, and combine the strengths, then you're going to lead to a much better outcome. Mm. And there's a real place for diversity in a workplace and people often talk about what diversity means. I think about it in personality type as well. You know, you want to have people that – like we said, at the social, we want to have people that can get the detail done. We need people that can do the last 5%. And when you're having a conversation with a group of people, you can get so much breadth and lateral thinking because everyone looks at a problem differently. Definitely, definitely. And it's so important to have the mix of personalities, I believe, in your business because at the end of the day, if you're all tarred with the same brush or you all have the same mindset, then you don't get the collaboration of ideas Mm-mm. that that you do when you have a mixture. Or that challenge, you know, sometimes when someone asks you a question, it really challenges your thought process or your perspective and you might be like, oh, that's a tough question or that makes me feel a bit edgy, but they're the brilliant questions, right? Because they're like, how can we look at this from another angle? Absolutely. I think that's why I work really well with my fellow four directors because we are so different in lots of ways, but we are so similar uh, at the same time and we bring definitely different viewpoints to the table and being able to thrash those out on a Thursday morning when we have our partners meeting is really important. Mm. You know, we regularly have heated debates about various things, but at the same time, we all unanimous or we, we manage to get to a unanimous decision mm. in whatever whatever that may be. And if you find it hard sometimes to be, you know, that that tough person, how do you have those tough, honest conversations? I think you've just got to rip the Band-Aid off, to be honest. It's a bit – I learnt this skill, I think, when I was first coaching football and having to drop someone and it's easier to pull them aside and there's no way of trying to sugarcoat it, I don't think, when you're having a tough conversation about performance, whether that's on the football field or in the office. And if you have to say to someone that they're underperforming, rather than beating around the bush or trying to sidestep the actual issue, if you address it head on, it leads to a better outcome, I think, because the person receiving the feedback has a very clear understanding of exactly where they sit as opposed to trying to make excuses as to why you may be firing them or maybe why you're dropping them Mm. or maybe why you're having to take some form of disciplinary action against them Mm. or reprimanding them at work. And I think if you're straight up and down with them, it leads to everyone being on the same page as to what needs to be fixed. And they learn to trust you. They learn to trust that you're going you're gonna to be honest and transparent even when it's a hard conversation. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So being straight up and down is a lot easier, uh, I've found, more recently than, than trying to sugarcoat it or, you know, apply the soft touch. Mm. 
Mm. I mean, I could talk business all day. That's my other passion next to um, challenges. I think talking business and how to work with people, maybe we need to do a second podcast on that one. (laughs) We could be here all day. (laughs) One of the other questions I love asking people when they come on because it just draws out so much colour and and differences amongst us is, did you have a favourite room in your house when you grew up? I did. I did. And without trying to sound creepy, it would have to be my mum and dad's bedroom. And the reason why I say that is because well, I just grew just clarify up- why it's not creepy. <laughs> That's right. So, <laughs> I grew up halfway between Walgut and Warner, and anyone listening to this podcast would know that that's um, – a very hot part of the world uh, and it, my mum and dad's bedroom was the only room in our house that had refrigerated air conditioning. Uh, so those long hot summer nights where it didn't get below 30 degrees, it was great to go in there. Uh, you could drag a doona in and snuggle underneath a doona even during the middle of summer because the refrigerated air conditioning used to work so well. So uh, it's for that reason that I'd have to say my mum and dad's bedroom was my favourite room in our house. Did you find that everyone congregated there? Like you'd, you'd wake up and everyone would be in there? They did. They did. Even my brother and sister would have dragged their doona in there uh, <laughs> in the middle of the night. So it was like a, a family sleeping room. And did they ever extend the, did they ever extend the aircon out into the other parts of the house or did you end up moving? There, there was an evaporative cooler through the rest of the house, but during the, the middle of summer, it certainly didn't cut the mustard as well as the refrigerated air conditioner did. Oh, and out there, I don't know that anything ever would other than a pool and that refrigerated air con, you know. It just gets so hot and it's just getting hotter by the year, I think. Oh, absolutely. And 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 especially when you cannot sleep. There's nothing worse than being hot and unable to sleep. So, yeah. 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 And, Ted, one of the reasons we've brought you on the podcast um, today is to talk about challenges that change us. So for you, you've, ha- you've overcome some of one of the biggest challenges I think anyone can face in a lifetime. And just to give everyone a bit of back end to that story is the week leading into Teddy's accident, I had another mate that became a paraplegic. So I had a phone call from my friends in Canoundra to say, PJ, who they were like a second family to me. I, Whenever I left home, I'd run away. I think not all teenagers run away, but I certainly did. That would be where I'd run to. And his family always took me in with open arms. And I'd had a phone call to say that a branch had fallen on him and they weren't sure what was going to happen, but he had no movement of his legs. And that was the first time in my life that I'd experienced that with a friend. I'd lost mates over the years in car crashes and drug overdoses, but never had I had a mate that had lost part, like a huge amount of quality in their life. So I'd booked a ticket to fly to Sydney to see him on the Monday and the that week leading into it, I'll never forget it. I'll never, ever forget that night. I was working at Storybridge Hotel in Brisbane and it'd been a massive shift and super busy and think we finished at I don't know 1 30 or 2 a.m in the morning and I grabbed my bag and I was walking to the car and I pulled out my phone and I had a look at it and there was 34 missed calls from mates at Albies and my heart just sank I was just like shit something is really wrong here and I just listened to one message after another message after another message and like the tears were just streaming down my face I was so frightened because every message just said something serious has happened to Ted he's been flown out he's at hospital the next message was he's been flown to Sydney we don't know what's going on he dived into a fountain and that was two mates in eight days two mates and the whole world stopped and that was my experience and I wasn't going through it you know so I, I can't even imagine for you that night Ted what what your experience would have been being there but if, if you're okay to, it'd be great to hear from you about what it was like for you. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fine to talk about Alzheimer's. It's funny you say that it only seems like yesterday because uh, for me, I do have such a, a vivid recall of exactly that day. I remember that I had been at work up at the gym at Sport UNE, which was the fitness centre at the University of New England. And I'd worked throughout that day and I finished work at about 5pm that afternoon. And throughout that day, the master of St Albert's had given me a call to say that there was a function on at the university bar that evening for the gay and lesbian fraternity of the university. And being the head of St Albert's College, he would have liked me, well, he liked me to go to show that St Albert's was inclusive and we embraced the diversity of the gay and lesbian fraternity at the university and I was somewhat hesitant because of the fact that I had recently obtained a job to work on the ski fields at Eaglevale in Colorado uh, over the upcoming Christmas holiday period Uh, and so I had an appointment at the American Embassy in Sydney uh, at 11am the following morning and so I appreciated that I'd have to be up early in order to drive down to Sydney to get to the embassy and so I didn't want to go out late that night but appreciate the importance of certainly showing face at this event. So I with a friend of mine Luke Brown went up to the university bar and being an avid dancer back in the day, a <laughs> uh, 110 kilo front rower that could carve up any dance floor, might I add. Oh, uh, certainly enjoyed it. Danced like no one was watching. But in any event, I got to about half past 11, quarter to 12, and I'd given myself the curfew of midnight and I'd run into another mate of mine, Pete Flynn, uh, who was a fellow front rower at the university bar and our plan was to walk back to St Albert's College where the residential college was and what happened as we were leaving there was a newly constructed water feature or a fountain out the front of the university bar and to put in a bit of context there was previously always a water feature uh, in this area of the university and regularly students would come out of final exams or during O week and used to swim in this fountain. Uh, (laughs) Bubbles, uh, there was bubble bath, I think. We we regularly had bubbles uh, in the fountain. And on this occasion, they'd built a new or finished constructing a new fountain. And as I came out of the university bar with Flinny, there was another couple of mates of mine uh, Glenn Ubergang and Millsy that were swimming uh, in the fountain. And what happened after that was I made the decision to dive into the fountain because it looked a lot deeper than, in fact, what it was. And regrettably, what happened was as I dived in, I felt my head come in contact with something. I didn't immediately know what it was, but I remember the, my chin being pushed down towards my chest and I knew immediately that something had gone terribly wrong because I was paralysed immediately. And I remember opening my eyes under the water and I could see 
the blood that was coming from my head staining the water. And then as I opened my eyes, I worked out that I'd come into contact with a light that was sticking up from the bottom of the of the pool area. And I remember lying there thinking to myself, I hope Flinny notices that I can't move because if I take a breath, I'll obviously drown, which when you're lying in less than two feet of water would be a terrible way to go out. Mm. To my good fortune, Flinny saw all the blood in the water, jumped in, rolled me over and was able to drag me out. I then remember being taken by the ambulance to Armadale Hospital where they stapled the top of my head or the lacerations in the top of my head. Um, I think I had 54 staples. Oh, God. I was then airlifted down to Royal North Shore in Sydney. And you remember all, you, you can remember this all. As, as clear as it was yesterday. And when I uh, got down to Sydney, uh, they did a fusion because I had effectively dislocated the C5 vertebrae over the top of C6. Uh, and they realigned the C5 and C6 vertebrae. And they fused them together with titanium plates. I was then in Royal North Shore till the 18th of December before being transferred out to the rehabilitation centre at Ryde. Mm. Sitting here listening to you, it's insane that you can remember every minute detail of what happened in the night. Like without hearing that, I would have thought that you would have just had this huge memory loss. And you said that in the moment when you're in the water, you could tell that you couldn't move. Was that scary or you were more just survival instinct, like I need someone to get me out of here? There was certainly a fear factor to it because mm. I knew what I'd done straight away. I knew that I'd suffered a spinal cord injury. Isn't um, that incredible when you, yeah. you know, never suffered a spinal cord injury before, just that you just knew? Yeah. Yeah. And and the funny thing was, having grown, grown up on a farm out west and fallen off the back of trucks, you know, chasing pigs and, and, and shooting and whatever else, and, and being a front rower, um, having played rugby union for, you know, 12 odd years at that stage, and being in collapsed scrums, everyone is petrified of having an injury um, of that nature. Mm. And then here I am, you know, uh, early twenties. It's it's sort of the last last place that I could envisage um, having such an injury. So there was certainly a fear factor associated with it. But anyone that I've spoken to that's had a spinal cord injury says the same thing that they knew exactly. They just knew what 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 happened straight away. And when I had my stroke, it was the same thing. I couldn't tell you what was going on, but I knew it was absolutely 10 out of 10, something serious was going down, you know? Yeah, yeah. And my husband and I both said we thought stroke straight away. Straight away. It was the first thing that came to mind. As a 30-year-old, you'd never expect that to be the first thing that pops in your mind. But there's yeah. something that happens in that moment that says my life is in danger, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's funny you, you, you say that. The three things that I thought about when I was lying there in the water face down waiting for Flinny to come and drag me out, and I remember it like it was yesterday, I thought to myself, one, firstly, bugger, this isn't going to be great because my life is going to change significantly. Mm. Uh, two, my 
mum and dad had recently moved, they'd sold the farm and moved to Bathurst to be closer to my brother and sister who were there at boarding school. And mum had been unable to secure a job straight away working in community health because she's a nurse by trade. But she had secured a job working with quadriplegics um, as a carer. Uh, And I thought there was a certain irony to this that mum was working with quadriplegics, then all of a sudden her son was going to become one. And Mm. then the third thing that I remember uh, is that there was a gentleman who had lived in Bathurst, who I'd only met once, that had been to St Albert's College, uh, I think five or six years prior, Dicko, and Mm. he had suffered a spinal cord injury whilst playing rugby for St Albert's College. Um, and I remember a couple of uh, older mates who knew Dicko and played football with Dicko were saying that after his injury, for obvious reasons, he became very bitter and he became very isolated from his friends and he sort of disassociated himself with his previous life as an able-bod, so to speak. And I remember thinking to myself at the time when I'm lying there face down in the water, I'm not going to be bitter. And I'm not going to be, um, you know, get rid of or, or, or... I need my people. I need my people around me. I, I need to make sure that I don't use this um, against my family and friends to turn them away from me. I remember thinking mm. about that quite clearly. That's just insane. Like we're talking about, I reckon, maximum a minute. It would have to be a minute and you can get so much going through your mind at that time. It would have been those first few weeks would have been chaotic when you ended up down in hospital. Do you have much memory of those first few weeks? I, I remember being in ICU. I was there for three days. That's probably where uh, I'm the most foggy, and I think that's probably because the I was in, I was in an induced coma. Yeah, but I was extremely fortunate that I didn't inhale any water onto my lungs um, mm. because as a quadriplegic. That is one of the things that delays your recovery and delays you getting to rehabilitation because they have to have a trackie put in uh, in order to help mm. them breathe. And I didn't have any of those things. Mm. So those first few weeks you, after you got out of ICU, did you go into a spinal rehab, like a spinal ward then? So we're on uh, Ward 7D, which was the old spinal ward at Royal North Shore. There were 16 other acute injury patients that were on that ward with me. And they're mostly men from memory? Yeah. I think the statistic is something like 92% of people that have a spinal cord injury else are men. So, Do we know why? Like is there some, is there some research on why that is? I don't know why. I know the statistic is something like 83% of people that have a spinal cord injury are males between the ages of 18 and 25, which if you look at statistics, I am your perfect candidate. And because of that split second decision to have some fun or to do something that's a little bit outside of the boundaries or? I I think because um, they're the risk takers uh, within the community. Absolutely. And they put them put themselves in positions where they're going to get hurt from time to time. Yeah. And it is crazy when we think about all the positions you'd put yourself in previously before that night and nothing had ever happened, you know, and then one split second and the whole world changes. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And what, what were those first few weeks like? It's funny you ask because I look upon those first few weeks and first few months, in fact, with extremely fond memories. And that may sound a little bizarre to a lot of people, but if I take a step back to put in a bit of context, I had gone from a situation of being um, 22 and absolute bulletproof. Um, So the accident happened a week before my 23rd birthday. And looking back now, life could not have been any better. You know, I was living in a residential college at university. I was getting through, I'd already graduated from commerce and I had two years of straight law to finish off my law degree. Um, I had great mates around me. Uh, I was vice captain of the first 15 rugby team. As I said, I was head of college. I was uh, had a great job working as a fitness instructor at the gym and everything was going swimmingly. And then in the space of a split second, going back to learning how to brush your teeth, learning how to feed yourself, uh, learning how to shower with the assistance of someone else, as dramatic as all that was, one thing that didn't change was the great mates, family and friends that I had around me. And so in those early months, I just had a constant stream of friends coming from St Albert's and the university more generally to come and visit me in Sydney. You know, I had mates, I remember on one distinct occasion, a friend, Greg Wynn and Sam Piddington came down and took me out for the day and we just caught a ferry or a river cat, I should say, from where we were at Ride into the city and sitting up the front of the river cat eating a bucket of prawns together. <laughs> so so there probably wasn't a lot of downtime to mope um, and to reflect more generally on how much my life would change. Were you kind of in survival mode in those early days? I and think so. A I think stream so. of visitors, nurses, and they would have been checking on you every two or four hours. Like there's no, not a lot of breathing space when you're in the really early days of a crisis like that. No, that's exactly right. And especially when you're on the acute ward at Royal North Shore, you know, you're being rolled. And what that means is that you have four nurses uh, or usually two nurses and two wards persons uh, that come in every four hours throughout the evening to roll you over to make sure you don't Mm. get pressure sores, Mm. um, rolling you from side to side. So you're very rarely alone. So Mm. there's not a lot of time to sit and dwell, I suppose. And I I can imagine we've spoken about how social you are, so that would have worked in your favour. I imagine for someone that's introverted or someone that needs their own space, that could be extremely challenging. Like, you know, for you, it helps support your process in those early days, but for someone else, it could absolutely, you know, be very challenging. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and for mine, um, as you say, because I'm such an extrovert and because I'm so social, I absolutely loved it. But I imagine for someone that's introverted and a lot more reserved than I am, it would be extremely difficult. You'd want space. I remember thinking when I was there, I constantly was like, I need to get Ted on his own because I need to know if he's really okay because you were just so chatty and bubbly and I'd been studying psychology and I was so concerned about the trauma and the grief and the future loss that I kept thinking I need to talk to you on your own. And I don't think in the whole time I was there and I was there for three months, I don't think I saw you on your own once. 
No, no, that's 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 exactly right. You know, to the point where um, those uh, people at St Albert's who weren't in my own year group, I suppose, and probably I was friends with, but wasn't extremely tight with, you know, to the point where they went out of their way to make a roster. I remember Millsy and Ubergang, two mates who were in a couple of years uh, under me, they devised a roster to make sure that there would be someone in Sydney with me every day of every week during those early stages. Mm. So, you know, having that sort of support network certainly made the whole process a lot easier. When were the dark moments for you? One specific time I remember I was lying it was extremely warm evening or a hot evening and I was at the Royal Rehabilitation Centre at Ride. And to give you an idea, because you obviously don't have any hand function or finger movement to be able to press a buzzer to be able to call a nurse. So what they do is they actually set up an apparatus that looks a bit like a music stand and that music stand has... Well, it looks like a a needle that comes off the end of it or a trigger, uh, and they sit that over the top of your mouth while you're sleeping. And if you need to alert the nurse or call a nurse during the evening, you simply touch that with your tongue and they'll come and provide you assistance. Too bad if your tongue comes out during your sleep. Well, that's right. That's right. You're calling (laughs) nurses constantly. But uh, on this particular evening, the music stand, for whatever reason, whether it be the fan or whatever, had moved away. So I had no way of contacting anyone. And there was a mosquito that had it in for me. And being uh, lying there, not being able to move your arms at all. And he was stinging me just all over my face uh, and on my neck. And he'd get in behind the back of your ear and he'd be stinging me there. And I remember thinking to myself at that moment, okay, it it can't get much worse than this. And I remember that distinctly and I'd had a bit of advice from someone that uh, his name was Al who was at Ward 7D with me and Al was extremely acute injury and he was a ventilated quadriplegic because he had injured his spinal cord so high. He said to me early on because at that stage he had, had his injury about 18 months prior and he said Ted what you need to do is get your head right once your head's right the rest of it's easy Mm. and never a true word spoken in the sense that if you have a positive frame of mind and you have the ability to be able to focus on what's important and distract yourself from those things that are getting you down then the rest of your life seems to have um, a positive overtone to it. That's advice that I think we all could listen to regardless of the situation, you know. It's like if we can work out our mindset and get our head in a space that's going to support our recovery or support the challenge and give us that leg up to kind of take the next step or do the next chapter or the next hour of your life, I think that's when the mind becomes so powerful and so critical to recovery. One of the things that he told me that I think is really important is he said it's okay to get angry and it's okay to get down on yourself 
Um, but what you've got to do is learn ways, mechanisms, strategies, whatever it is, to get yourself out of that negative place. So mm. allow yourself to be negative for five or ten minutes, but then have a strategy to divert your mind, to distract yourself, whether or not you be thinking about the best game of rugby you've ever played or, you know, the girlfriend that you've got a crush on, whatever it is, something to distract you so as you can change your mindset. Because as he said, it's important to have the highs, but it's also important to have the lows as well. So mm. then you can appreciate the highs. So, you know, it's just important to be Couldn't able be to, to, to deal with those lows when they come along mm. um, and work through them. Did you need to train yourself in that space? Because I know that's something that I mentioned to people is it's it's we call it stop thinking and switching. So it's like when you when you catch yourself starting to go down and down that funnel, it's like it's almost like you you need to flip the switch. And initially when you start doing it, it can be robotic. It doesn't have to be natural, but it's like, oh, there I am. Now I need to intentionally think about something that either makes me happy or something else or trying to switch lanes of where your mindset was going. It's something I worked hard on uh, early and it's probably one of the most important lessons that I learned early on is the ability to switch your mind off. Mm. I've always How did you learn it though? I guess that's, you know, it's hard. I don't know if you'll be able to put this in words, but someone out there listening to this is going to be like, yes, but how? Like, I hear that that's what I got to do, but how do I actually do it? I think it's probably different for different people. Um, what worked for me is thinking about a difficult moment in your life and how you work through that moment. And at the age of 22 and 23, a lot of that came back to rugby and rugby training. And, you know, if I, I was having a shit day at rehab, it would come back to, okay, remember those pre-season trainings when you were doing hill sprints or you're, you know, linking arms with fellow front rowers, you know, doing sit-ups up hills or something like that. And when you're in that, moment of physical discomfort, thinking about that and thinking about how good it felt when you finished. When you've overcome it. When you've overcome it and you've finished that training session and get the endorphin rush afterwards. I found it easy to take my mind there um, and remember the good times and my mates that I was playing football with that I think that's regularly when I was having a difficult period at rehab, it where was went. that's where I went in my mind. Yeah. yeah. What happened with the mozzies? Eventually I faded off to sleep or for whatever reason drifted off to sleep and it wasn't there when I woke up. I guess that would have been a real pivotal moment in that like this is potentially what it's going to be like, you know, when the aid isn't there to support me, I'm stuck. And, and, and it made me realise that, you know, I'd gone from being a reasonably physical fit. Reasonably bloody fit. 22-year-old bloke. And then all of a sudden to be so reliant on everyone. And other people. You know, f everything from helping them 
getting them to help you shower, to brushing your teeth, to cutting up your meal so you can eat, everything that you'd taken for granted for so, so long Mm. um, and was just part of everyday life. All of a sudden, it was those things that they took a bit of getting used to, you know, not being so independent and having that independence taken away from you. Ripped away. It's And we're not talking slight independence. We're talking about everything. Yeah, it is. It is. Absolutely. It's There's not one aspect. I used to joke that the only time that I was by myself, and, and still probably is today, is when you're sitting on the toilet. Because, mm. the, you know, well, with three children, you probably don't even have that anymore. But the only time that you were by yourself was then because... So it, your, poo, it, your poo time got longer? It, it very it much stretched so. stretched it out to about an hour, then two hours. I'll just be in here for a while, guys. That's Leave right. Me I'm, I'm just having a lunch. moment to myself <laughs> um, because I'm sick of dealing with everyone. With everyone. Yeah, yeah. But it was one of those things that it, uh, you know, once again being a social creature, it didn't affect me as much as others having people around 24-7. But I must say, there were times when whatever nurse or carer was with you and you'd say, do you mind just stepping out of the shower for five minutes because I want to sit here on my, you know, Mm. Pat Malone and and let the water pour over my head so I I can drift off to somewhere else and I don't have to be involved in conversation or, yeah, yeah, you know. That constant having to be on and having to be up and it's relentless and exhausting. Yeah, it is, it is. And then doing the small chat because you're Mm. there with someone else and if you don't say anything it becomes And you might not know that person very well as well is the other thing. Like the nurses come and go. You don't always know them. No, no, you've met them that morning for the first Mm. time and then there you are in all your glory, you know. Yeah. What about fears? I'd imagine there would have been a few float through your mind over the time. Oh, definitely. In the early stages, I remember, you know, within the first week or so, one of the biggest things that I started to dwell on was whether or not I'd ever be able to have children again, Mm. whether or not I would. Again, um, did you have one I didn't know about? No, no, well, not at that stage. I I should say. (laughs) Just checking, just checking. You know, if one of my mates is uh, the mother of your child, it would be helpful to know. I was pretty confident that um, uh, up until that point that I could conceive children if I wanted to. So, you know, not knowing whether or not I would have the ability to do so. Because that's probably a question a lot of people have yeah. is can, can you have sex? Like does the, is that something or do you need to find other ways to have children? Absolutely. No, it's a good question. One that people – have you been asked this before? Oh, I, I, I have been asked it before and I certainly don't have a problem with people asking about it because it's important that everyone um, understands and knows Especially this. someone that's going through it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So I had a moment and this is probably – extremely embarrassing for myself, but it's a funny story nonetheless. So when I was in the, it was back in the early days when I was in rural North Shore and they had a hydrotherapy pool. And the way they used to do it was they used to send you down in groups of three down to the hydrotherapy pool and you had to motor from where the the main part of the hospital was probably 500 yards or so in your powered wheelchair down to um, the pool. And what they would do was uh, you'd each have a turn in the pool and the others would sit on the poolside pool deck watching uh, while the other person, and then when you're all finished, you're all motored back up together. 
Anyway, on this day in question, I was there with uh, two other mates and I was doing my thing in the hydro pool and I was there with one of the young physio women and she was, you know, getting me to do back sculling and, and moving my arms and basically learning how to float in the water. And then I glanced to the side and I saw my two other mates or three other mates that were sitting there in absolute hysterics. And I remember thinking to myself, what in God's name are they laughing at? What am I doing wrong? Is my, you know, my hands flapping in a funny way? (laughs) Absolutely. And then I glanced down and as every male would know, sometimes your anatomy has a complete mind of its own. Mind of its own. And there I was protruding out of the water um, (laughs) with a bulge in my pants that is completely unexplained, Alice. And it was and also of, couldn't be hidden, I'd imagine. And it was one of the most humiliating but exhilarating, exciting, exciting mm-hmm. moments of my life. And so, because that would have been the first time I imagine that you're like, "Wow, I this this a- absolutely, this, yeah." I cannot move my legs. I cannot move my arms. My fingers don't work. But guess what? My <laughs> dick still works. It's and, still going. <laughs> and and it was. Yeah, as I said, it was it was humiliating but exhilarating at the same time. How does that happen with human anatomy? Have you been told now? Like, did you ask the questions then? Oh, absolutely. And and it's it's funny. So, for those that don't know, um, quadriplegics are much more likely to be able to have an erection and ejaculate as opposed to paraplegics. Now, no one could explain really? why. It's part of the mystery around the spinal cord and probably why we haven't been able to find a cure for it as yet because um, a lot of what is known uh, or I should say what is unknown about the spinal cord is the effect that it has on people. But people that damage their spinal cord, the lower that you damage your spinal cord, the more likely it is that you'll be unable to get an erection and unable wow. to ejaculate. So I say it's it's a bit like um, God's having a bit of a laugh at us, right? Because you can't use your hands, but at the same time, he gives you an erection. Yeah. I, I cannot imagine because I've never been in this situation, but at the same time, I can totally imagine just how exactly what you said, humiliating, but the best moment, one of those best moments of your life that you'll never forget. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'll never forget as long as I live. And the the look on the poor physio's face, she just whispered in my ear, it's okay, it happens. And I I didn't know what to say or do. Um, Yeah, you're like, please let this moment pass. It's great, I've seen it, this is awesome, I'm going to cheer on my own later, but please just let me get out of the water. (laughs) Just get me out of the water, please (laughs) get me out of this bloody pool. Yeah. Oh, my God, any teenage boy listening to this will be like, that happens to me in school class. (laughs) No control. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you are and you'd like to learn more or engage further with our podcast community, you can do this in our Facebook group. Just search for Challenges That Change Us on Facebook or look in the link in our show notes. In this group, we'll be sharing extra content and giving further background to our episodes. So I hope to see you there. But for now, let's get back to the episode. So what about then when I've been talking to people that have been through this, like I had conversations with everyone that was on the ward with you and obviously where Peach was, he was over at Randwick. And one of the things that I noticed was that it got harder as the time went on, you know, like leaving rehab and going into communities when there's this real step up in challenge. 
Was that your experience? Definitely. And I think the reason why is because of the fact that when you're in uh, hospital and when you're in rehabilitation, it's all new and exciting. And then what happens is, I think, Alice, you're discharged and you go back home. And I had to not only adjust from living in a residential college to going back and living with my parents when um, having not done so since I was 12 when I first headed mm. off to boarding school, that was a massive adjustment. It would be for even without being quadriplegic. Like that independence would yeah. be an adjustment for anyone, let alone absolutely, Absolutely. And so you get discharged and you go home and it it's a bit of a clash between this is what my old life was and this is what my new life is, but there being a massive void in between them in mm. the sense that you're unable to use the remote to turn on the TV, you're unable to go and get a drink out of the fridge and pour yourself a glass of milk or make yourself a Milo, you're unable to grab a loaf of bread and make yourself a toasty. All mm. of those little things that you associated with being at home and being free to do so previously, although it was all still the same uh, in a physical sense, uh, you were unable to do any of that. And so getting your mind around that. Um, it almost is getting your mind around the physical, how am I logistically going to do this, but also what does my new chapter look like? Because it's something you've never experienced. You don't have mates around you that have experienced it. You don't know what that future looks like. That's exactly right. And after being discharged and moving home, it was a situation where you've gone from an environment where you have nurses and carers around you 24-7 to a situation where, um, well, mum and it's half past eight in the morning, mum and dad have headed off to work. I've got my phone and I can call various people if, if something goes wrong and I need help with something, but you're there by yourself. And so, you know, if I drop a textbook, because I was studying at the time, uh, if I drop a textbook on the floor... Well, it, ha it. It, ha it has to stay there until 5.30 when mum and dad get home from work. Whereas previously when I was in rehab, you know, if I dropped my textbook on the floor, you just You could poke it. your tongue out. That's right. You, you, be like, dude, yeah. come and get my textbook. <laughs> you, you buzz the nurse and they're there within minutes or seconds, you know. So that took a lot of getting used to. One of the things, Ted, is that um, – having spent a fair bit of time in hospital myself and, and having mates that have gone through hospital is that when you're in hospital, you fight the fight, you know, like it's like I've just got to survive, I've got to get my rehab done, I've got to make the best opportunity of what I can now. And then when you go back out into the community, the, the support drops off, you know, and not, by, not intentionally. It's just I remember someone said to me when we left, say yes to everything, even though you feel like you don't need the help right now, say yes to everything because the support's going to dramatically drop off over time. So true. And I think when you're in rehab and hospital, everything's so structured. So on a daily basis, you're meeting with physios and occupational therapists that plan your day for you, whether or not that be, you know, doing transfer training first thing in the morning through to learning how to use modified cutlery to eat or to brush your teeth with an OT. So those things are all planned out throughout the day. And when you do get discharged, there is none of that anymore. And you're 
left to your own devices as to mm. how you are to fill in your day. I, mm. I suppose that uh, that's a good segue into how did I get back into work? Because one of the things that was really good for me was I was put in contact with uh, Commonwealth Rehabilitation Services. And there was a girl that I had known throughout high school and she, uh, ironically enough, had just graduated from occupational therapy only a year or so prior. And so she was assigned to be my caseworker. And she, I think I was only home for two or three days when she first reached out and said, hi, Ted, I've been assigned your caseworker, we need to get you back into the workforce. And it's interesting listening to Dylan Alcott yesterday say that only 53% of people with disability are able to work. To get back in the workplace. To get back in the workforce. 53%. 53%. One in two. So she was, after three days, we've got to get you you know, back working again. And I was I was scared. I was extremely reluctant because I was like, how in God's name am I going to work in an office? I, mm. I can't pick up a pen. I can't answer a phone. She's like, don't worry about that. We'll sort all that out. Um, we'll get around that for you. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, this is just, you know, a mountain too high to climb. Yeah. And I said to her at the time, you know, it's okay, it's okay. I just need a bit of time. Time. And I said, if you call me in six months and then we can check in and work out where we're up to. So she rang me a week later, Ted, we're going to get you back into the workforce. (laughs) And once again, I fobbed her off. And I said, if you contact me in six months, we can have a chat. And so she rang me a week later and she's like, Ted, got to get you back into the workforce. You want to become a lawyer quick. Hurry up. And it got too much for me. I said, okay, okay, fine, Done. Fine. I'll just – anything to get you to stop ringing me and me so, having the anxiety that Monday morning's coming around right. and I'm going to get the phone call that's again. That's right. So literally – What a champion though. Oh, absolutely. Like literally. you need someone like that, right? And I'll forever be indebted to her. And so that afternoon she was there uh, helping me <laughs> – Put a resume together. What are we going to do? And, and, wow. and, and write cover letters to all the law firms in Bathurst, you know, to go and do work experience. She's like, this is how you're going to work it out. Well, you're not going to work it out sitting at home. And oh so God. she was extremely pragmatic with me. And I think that was some of the best help that I've ever received. Mm. Mm. And for someone else, it might feel too pushy, but it's probably what you needed. You oh, know, 100%. That firecracker. Absolutely. That transition going from hospital to the community is the biggest transition for many. Yeah. And it's what does my life look like now? There's no one around. I can't buzz the nurses. I, it's me. Yeah. It's me in the world and how am I going to make that work? And you can drop very quickly. Oh, big time, big time. And, mm. and because what in terms of context, so I had injured my – well, I had my accident a week before or two weeks before final exams at the end of fourth year of a five-year degree. And so I was able to pick up second semester 2005, what I'd been studying second semester 2004. So it was pretty much doing a fair bit of a revision rather than learning new content in that first semester. And then I was able to go on and do my fifth year, final year. The, the final just, year. Just stopping you there, I, like when you say that, my first thought is how did you study? Like what did it look like? So when I was in rehab, there was a lady that came in that taught me how to use Dragon Naturally Speaking, which is a voice recognition software program that you can use to control your computer. So 
that was hard getting used to that and getting used to thinking quicker than what you're seeing the words appearing on the screen because typing is certainly a lot different to using voice recognition software. Mm. And then in addition to that, because it was 2004 slash 2005, they didn't really have eBooks back in those days. So it would have been those big, I did law, those big heavy textbooks and you need like six of them per subject. That's right. That's right. And funny story, Alice, with regards to, you know, just moments of, you know, taking a deep breath was I remember I was studying one time and as I said mum and dad had gone off to work and it was about 10 o'clock in the morning and I was flicking through and I had to go to page 400 and something and you know one page at a time flicking through and got there and then the slightest of breezes came up and closed the textbook and you start again right and and that but you can't that's right that's right. So the mental frustration associated with that, um, you know, that's where I got good at going, okay, remember that time when we were playing Armadale City and, you know, remember that time where you scored that try up at Glen Innes and, you know, remember that time when you were with your mates doing hill sprints and that distraction of mind, I suppose. Yeah. And that taking a breath, you know, it's finding that gap between – there's shit I can control and there's shit I can't and focus my energy on the things I can control, but it's very easy to get caught up in the things that you can't and some of the things you can't control have a huge impact. Like that has a big impact on your day. If you've got a textbook and you can't open it and you're trying to study law and that's the one thing, one job you've got to get done for the day, you can't do massively, it. Massively, massively. And uh, mm. another instance I remember I had an assignment due and I dropped my headset on the floor and then so rather than being able to bend down and pick it up, you just had to say, well, nothing's going to get done today. So, mm. you know. No wonder you've got three kids. <laughs> they, like, can run around and be like, here, Daddy, Absolutely, Daddy. <laughs> absolutely. They're extremely handy. So you used voice recognition for the computer. Yes. And how did you do the textbooks? You should have got someone to read it well, to you. I would have done that. By that stage, I did have movement in my arms, so to speak. And so although for people trying to picture what it looks like, your hands more like a fist than having dexterity in your fingers. But I was able to, I was better, I got better at being able to use my fists, I suppose, to be able to manipulate a textbook to get to certain pages. Mm. So It's more like a shove, right? Like that's it's more right. like a drop and drag. <laughs> that's right. Then a lick the finger and turn elegant. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, there's certainly no elegance about it. And then, you know, these days everything's online so it doesn't affect me in practice near as much as what it used to because Mm. we very rarely use hard copy anything these days in the legal side of things but yeah in the early days it was certainly uh it it was a difficulty that i had to overcome and it's truly incredible how far you've gone in the legal like getting a law degree to start with is a huge challenge for most people Definitely was for our, like we were talking about this the other day. Most of our mates don't even practice law now. I certainly don't. Most of the people we went through uni, I think there's two of you that we know of that are still practicing. So that law degree in itself is challenging and tough. But to do it when you're in a wheelchair, when you've, and it's also not just in a wheelchair, it's when it, the accident first happens. So you're still dealing with every other external factor in your life at the same time. But then to go on, you did your master's. Yeah. Yeah. You've gone to be a director of the, legal firm that you're at now you're on boards everywhere 
Yeah, yeah. And I, I suppose I suppose it comes back to the fact that one, I love being involved and I've always had that in my nature, whether that being, you know, the management committee of St Albert's College to being president of St Albert's Rugby Club or, you know, working up at Sport UNE. So I've always loved to be involved in various different things, but certainly a lot of it is driven by my willingness not to let my disability define me. Mm. And I'm certainly very determined in the sense that when people may think, oh, well, you know, he won't be able to do that. I never forget having a conversation with someone. When I first started work, I was finding myself, I, I needed an outlet because I didn't really have a hobby. And I, because I was doing crime and family law and a lot of which is highly emotive uh, and I need... Heavy. I needed an outlet so as I didn't take on other people's problems. And I decided to get back into rugby coaching. I had a lot of mates that I'd been to school with in Bathurst and they were involved with the Bathurst Bulldogs Rugby Club and they suggested that I should get into coaching. And I remember saying to them, well, how in God's name am I going to, you know, show someone how to pack a scrum? Or, and they were like, Teddy, you'll work it out. It's okay. Just mm. do it and you'll find a way. And that's ultimately how it happened. So in 2010, I got back into rugby coaching, coaching second grade down at Bathurst Bulldogs. And what I learnt was that it's a bit like when you're a front rower showing someone how to throw a cutout pass. You naturally just find the most talented 5'8 uh, in your squad and you say, listen, this is a, what I want you to demonstrate. Show your fellow teammates how you go about doing this. And so I found that those things were what I needed to do to, you know, be able to be to demonstrate those those skills on the rugby field. Skills. Yeah. When you say, you know, it doesn't define you, I think that's a really important statement and one that I know most people would have a challenge with, right? How do you go about that? How do you go about making sure that because there's a fine line between this is who I am and I can't change it and this is the way that I walk in the world versus it's not really who I am. Yeah. Like there is so much more to me. Oh, absolutely. And so that people don't just see that, right? Like you don't want – and correct Mm. me, please tell me if this isn't the way it is for you, but you don't want people looking at you and seeing a wheelchair. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. But you want them to understand that accessibility is an issue and they need to – you know, it's that balance, right? Big time. And, and I'll be the first to say that there is not a day goes by else that I don't, you know, wake up and as the carer comes through the door to get me out of bed and, and hoist me onto my shower chair that I don't think, ah, oh, shit, you know, Jesus, it would be a damn sight easier to do all this and go through life if I was able-bodied. Mm. But at the same time, You've got to be grateful for the fact that I'm alive, I've got beautiful kids, I've got an amazing wife, I've got awesome, love I job. love my job, I've got great mates that I can ring up and whinge to. So, you know, if you focus on the negative, then of course it's going to be negative. But if you focus on the positive, then, you know, life's much more enjoyable, I've found. Mm. And 
you can fake that till you make it. I talk about this in PT um, is that if you sit there at the kitchen table and tell yourself you're fat every single day for 30 days, at the end of the 30 days, I guarantee yep. you that you're going to start to think yep. that you're fat. Why do, why do we not believe and have faith that it works in the opposite? So if we sit there every single day and say, I'm grateful for X and repeat that every single yep. day, that by the end of the 30 days, we're going to feel a little bit more gratitude towards that part of our so life. So true. So true. Absolutely. Mm. So what would you say is the one thing that you miss the most? Probably being able to give affection like you used to. And that sounds really What do you mean so, by so, that? So, yeah, can you explain that a little more? So the way I heard it described once by someone else that had a spinal cord injury, they said it's amazing that by not having feeling affects your feelings. And what I mean by that is one of the things that I truly miss is being able to walk up to your wife, wrap your arms around her and give her a big hug or mm. being able to walk up behind her, wrap your arms around her and give her a big hug or, mm. you know, especially when the kids came along, when you see one of them hurt themselves, not being able to swoop down, pick them up, and give them a cuddle was extremely difficult and took a lot of getting used to. Because you almost have to be instructional, you do. right? Come you over do. here and I will give That's you a cuddle. Right. So to your wife, it's like, stop cooking, come over here. I really just feel like I, I just really want to cuddle you and tell you that I love you, but just just put that down and come over here and just put your arm here and, you know, like it becomes technical. So true. Technical. Exactly, exactly. And it takes that spontaneity out of the relationships that you have, if one of the girls hurt themselves or are upset for whatever reason, having to coax them onto your lap in order for mm. a cuddle, yeah, I, I miss that. I miss that, mm. I suppose, on a deeper emotional level. Do you know if touch was your love language? Have you ever done love languages? No, I haven't. No. It'd be interesting to do. We might. I'll send it to yeah, you. Yeah, right. Um, and I, it, it, touch might be your love language, and the way you show love is by through touch, whether it's cuddles or sex or whatever yeah. it is. And so now you don't have the ability to do that through your own choice. You have to direct someone in, which is really interesting, and I can imagine um, it's really shit sometimes. Yeah, well, I, I think as you would well know, I, I was, you know, I've always been a touchy feely guy. You know, I, I never. Super cut Teddy. <laughs> That's right. Hence That's the name, right. So cuddly. I, I, I've never, I've never had a problem, you know, giving someone a cuddle in order to show affection or your friendship for them. So that was extremely hard because it's as, because you lose that spontaneity and as you say, it's much more instructional. Um, it's one of those things that when you're developing new relationships, what made it might have been much more um, natural and instantaneous previously now you know you have to use phrases like especially to someone that you don't know well you know like bring it in give me a hug you know mm. as you say mm. it becomes instructional rather than and then they might feel awkward right. about it. That's they right. might be like, how do I cuddle? Do I come in this way or do, do I feel like I'm packing a scrum e here? Exactly or? exactly yeah a so it's a barrier to communication that people that you're you've had to learn to overcome, and others every time they come into your life also have to find a way through. Big time, big time, and and mm. and, and the wheelchair forms a physical barrier as well, mm -hmm. which it, which is mm -hmm. you know uh, is another obstacle you have to overcome. And 
one of the questions I, I wanted to ask you, Ted, because we spoke about this when we talked about doing the interview and, and I asked you, you know, wh- why this interview? Like, why now? Why this? And you gave the most beautiful answer. Do you remember? <laughs> Do you remember what you said? Like, why sit here and give up this time to talk? Well, if I'm being honest, it, it, it's probably a little bit of self-preservation as well, because I've always had the attitude, Alice, that one of the things that plagues you is why me? Why did this happen mm-hmm. to me? And the mm-hmm. one of the answers, whether right or wrong, I don't know, that I've always come up with is, James or Ted, this is your opportunity to help others understand and assist others. And so if this has happened to me in order that I can talk about it and open people's eyes and enable them to get through whatever they're dealing with by talking about my situation, then it almost justifies why this happened has happened to me. Mm. So I certainly don't have a problem talking about it at all because I feel as though it's really important for people to understand what it is like or have empathy for those that do have a disability. Um, by mm. all means, the last thing people want with a disability is for you to pity them. But what I would like for people that don't have a disability to understand better because it's not that they don't want to understand or, and I will be the first to acknowledge this, that when I was able-bodied, my understanding of accessibility or what um, someone's disability was, I was extremely naive to all of that. And it wasn't Mm. until I was put in the situation of having a spinal cord injury and being reliant on a wheelchair that all of a sudden, every second shop has a step into it. And even more so when you first happened. Like we're talking, how long has it been now? 15 years? Showing yeah, age? 17 years, yeah. 17. Yeah. You know, 17 years ago it was even worse. It was, it was. And things are getting better. But we're, there are still, there's still a long, still way, long way to go. Still a long way to go. We had my daughter was in a wheelchair for a few weeks last year and we couldn't get into half the shops in our rural town. I remember going in to fix her flute and we couldn't get up over the step to get into the shop. And I thought, wow, you know, what would you do if I wasn't here? Yeah. Or there was a a client that I work with and she was um, upstairs in the supermarket and she said to me when I saw her the next day, you know, the, um, the lift broke. And I said, how did you get, how did you get out of the shopping center? And she said, well, I went and asked someone if they could help and then they just looked at me and said, oh, I don't know how to. And I was like, pardon? Like, what What do you mean? That? What? <laughs> you know? And I think it, it is, if it's not in your world, it's very easy to be naive. I was, yeah. without a doubt. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not through no, not caring. No, no. It's through not understanding and it just not being part correct, of the world. Correct, correct. And, and it's certainly not a criticism at all because, you know, why, why would you? you? You'd be extremely morbid if you walked around thinking how inaccessible something was when it had no impact upon your own life. So I, I certainly don't say it's a criticism, but it's, um, you know, just enlivening people to the fact that these problems exist. And I think giving them mm. an understanding hopefully will lead to a better outcome. And if we could change one or two things from your experience around accessibility, what would that be? Nothing like a loaded question at the end of no, the No, that's exactly right. Firstly, making sure that everything, certainly public places 
that their accessibility is up to scratch. You mm. know, an example I give, and I, I'm not sure whether this has changed because of the fact that I haven't looked into it for a number of years, but something that I learned numerous years ago that just blew me away was that there is not one accessible unit or room in any hotel around Sydney Harbour that has a harbour view. Wow. Now, they discovered this when Christopher Reeves came to Australia, I think in 2003 or 2000, I think he passed away in 2004. So when Christopher Reeves or Superman came to Australia, I think it might have been 2001, it was just after the Olympics, I think, they discovered that not one room in any hotel had a harbour view that was accessible. So what they actually did was one of the hotels, they converted to have an accessible room so so as he would have a harbour view. But for some unknown reason, that room has since been converted back to be back. non-accessible. No way. So if I want to stay in any hotel in Sydney with my wife, then it is absolutely impossible out of the, out of the question to have a harbour view room. Which I, I I think is you know or or another example else that I get frustrated about is that there is no lift that can take you to street level on the Harbour Bridge. Now we live in a society in a developed country where I say that that shouldn't be overly difficult, but for whatever reason, whether it be her heritage or overlooked or just deemed to be not important. The fact that I will never be able to walk across the Harbour Bridge with my daughters to enjoy one of the greatest landmarks in the world is sad, is sad. Mm. Mm. And to layer that one more deep, when my daughter was in the wheelchair last year, we looked at high schools for this year in our regional town and not one there's one high school, one of all of them, that is wheelchair accessible. Every other school said to us, oh, we might need to change the timetable. Actually, the art room's up there. She won't be able to do art. And I was like, pardon? Yeah. Like schools? Yeah. Not w There was one school. Not one of the other schools was fully wheelchair accessible. I was like, are there no other kids in Armidale in wheelchairs? And I, d I don't know why this is, but having travelled uh, extensively since being in a wheelchair, if I go to Europe, their accessibility is far greater than we have in Australia. If I go to America, it is 10 times more accessible mm. than we uh, have here in Australia. So I think we we dropped the ball and the statistics are there for all to see in, in terms of where we sit as a developed nation and our level of support for people with disabilities and accessibility. Now, the NDIS is one of the greatest things that's ever come along for people with disabilities. But at the same mm. time, whilst that's opened numerous doors for them, it hasn't addressed the fundamental issue of accessibility, I believe. Mm. Mm. When I hear you talk, my mind goes to what is one thing that I could do that would be helpful? So if there was one thing that everyone that's listening to, because I want to have an impact on 10,000 lives this year, that's the goal of this podcast in 12 months. So if there, if every person listening could do one thing that will help, what could that be? If you uh, own a business that has a shop front, that if you could make that accessible, that will go a long way. Or if you own a restaurant or 
a cafe. Uh, if you make that accessible, that then encourages people with disabilities to be more visual within the community and mm. creating that level of visibility in turn makes people think about disability more. And the more mm -hmm. people that have a disability are visible within the community, the greater level of inclusion that we're going to have. An example I give, I was in America back in 2008 for a, a mate of mine's wedding and I had to go to Macy's in order to buy one of my bags got lost on the way over there and so I didn't have a suit. And we went to Macy's to buy a suit. Not that that has ever stopped you before. No, no, just, just saying. saying. And uh, <laughs> the guy that sold me my suit in Macy's was in a wheelchair. And I was thinking to myself, I've never, I've never seen anyone working in a department store in Australia that's been in a wheelchair or had a severe disability. And the fact that I was mm -hmm. served by someone in a wheelchair and for him to have an understanding. For, for example, one of the first questions that if I go to um, buy a suit these days, I regularly get asked, and they don't do it to, maliciously. maliciously or to be cruel, what sort of belt do you want? Are you looking for a new belt? Well, you're sitting in a wheelchair, so you don't your pants don't fall down, mm -mm. don't need the belt. Mm -mm. Or, you know, I go to, you know, a sports store in order to buy a new pair of joggers and one of the funniest things I've ever been asked is, do you want a cross trainer or a runner? Uh, <laughs> and the poor girl, after, <laughs> after she asked me the question, you almost see that she was trying to catch the words she as just, they were leaving yes. her mouth. But, you know, it's, it's, it's those things that I think that if people are exposed to more people with disability, then we're going to start to turn our mind to it more. So by yes. making things more accessible for people, and the other thing that I would really like to see is a curriculum in our schools associated with disability and starting a conversation at a really early age. Because what I find being in a wheelchair is that for whatever reason, maybe it's because we think it's, you know, social etiquette not to discuss or ask questions about someone's disability. But I regularly do talks in primary schools and some of the questions I get asked in primary schools shows a deeper level of thinking from kids age six, seven, eight than I do for many adults in terms of, you know, the trials the and curiosity. the curiosity and the trials and tribulations that, that someone with a disability may experience. So So what what would that look like? How you know, what would that conversation is it is it going into high schools and, and giving them an idea of the type of disabilities out there and the types of needs or the type or what are you Yeah, the, the, exactly the type of needs. So from my understanding and the bit of research I've done that the there might be a business here, by the way, if you're wondering why my mind's ticking over. I'm like, Teddy, what can you and I do this year? <laughs> the, 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 the American mindset changed dramatically when they brought in their Bill of Rights um, because mm -hmm. what that did was create a pathway for the curriculum within schools to educate people about people with disabilities and what different disabilities look like and how to make life easier for people with disabilities. So no longer <laughs> do you have that awkwardness us as Aussies, I think, naturally have a personal space that they don't have in America. But 
for example, people saying to you rather than them standing back and just watching you try to get on the bus, mm. Um, mm. you know, four or five people immediately stepped forward and said, listen, would you like a hand? Would you like you a hand? You know? Funny you should say that. I was sitting at a cafe last week and there was this guy holding on to this post and he was holding on pretty tight and I said to the girl I was with, I think I should go and check. She's like, no, no, he's just waiting for someone and – my mum's got dementia and so I was thinking, is he lost? And a couple of people walked past, he tried to talk to them and they kept walking. I was like, no, no, this guy needs help. And she's like, no, 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 don't, he's fine. He's, don't embarrass yeah. me. Like, he, just yeah. stay here. And I was like, no, I'm going over. I went over to him. I said, mate, are you right? He goes, oh, can you just help me get down into the gutter? I can't step down. Yeah, yeah. That was all yeah. he needed. Oh, it felt like 10 minutes, to be honest. It may have been yeah. three. I'm prone to exaggeration. <laughs> but I was like- Whoa, you know, that could have been so easily missed. How long would he have stood there holding on to the pole, trying to work out, knowing that he can't step down that gutter, just needing someone to ask a simple question, can I help you with that's that? That's the exact scenario that I'm talking about. And that's mm. if we can start a conversation when kids are in schools and they're open to these things, mm. that hopefully over time, those things will change. Increase awareness, Increase awareness. And interaction and absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Oh, wow. We've covered some ground today. It's been great. All righty, Ted. It has honestly been a pleasure to sit here and talk to you. I feel like I could sit here and talk for hours and hours and hours and I, I really take my hat off to your honesty today and your transparency because, you know, we went to some places that you, you may not have been asked before or, or isn't commonly discussed. One of the things that I'd like to ask you now is, is there someone or something in your life that makes you belly laugh? And I mean really belly laugh. My four-year-old. Yeah? She. Can you give us an example? I think it's largely because of the fact of her age uh, and she's always known dad uh, as being in a wheelchair and she doesn't have that social filter yet that you develop as you get older and so she'll regularly ask me or she'll say to people I should say that we will go somewhere or do something and she will point out to a complete stranger that my dad can't use his hands or my dad can't use his fingers. Just in case you can't tell. <laughs> that's right. He's not going to get up. He's not going to get up and give you a cuddle. So can you just come over because his legs that's aren't That's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> and uh, my dad uses a wheelchair. So, you know, the fact that she has that endearingness to point that out to absolute complete strangers certainly makes me laugh. Maybe we need to take her in for our talks to the Absolutely. school. Absolutely. Absolutely. What about, is there anything on your bucket list? Is there anything now going into the future that's on your bucket list to do? I'd love to walk again. Um, is that in the car? Because there was some research coming out. Is there, is there any hope at the moment with the science that's coming out that that could happen or are we still at a place where it's just so unknown? I, I believe, Alice, that it, it, it will happen one day, whether or not that's in my lifetime or, or down the track. But ultimately, it, it's one of those things that someone once said to me when I was in rehab, I think it might have been Al even, allow yourself to dream of it, but don't rest your hopes on it in terms mm. of don't become so fixated on this is I want to walk again. That it, that it interrupts your everyday that life. That it becomes paralyzing to you. Yeah. I remember Al, you know, you've mentioned him a few times in this conversation. He was a truly incredible oh. man. I remember him. Out of everyone on the wards, the vision of him and his words and the hope that he gave and the inspiration that he yeah. had. Yeah. Mm, 
truly amazing guy. So that interview was meant to be 45 minutes. And as you can tell, when you listen to it, that I got to about 38 minutes and had to make a decision. And I thought, you know what? We haven't even scratched the surface yet. There's so much more to this story. And I'm so pleased we went on and kept recording. So I really hope that you took a lot away from that episode. Uh, Teddy is just the most incredible, as I said in the intro, the most incredible, inspiring determined man I know and I just it was such an honor to do this interview with him today so we will see you guys all next week thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode you can gain more by joining our Facebook group challenges that change us or next week we will return with another episode